Hello, hello. So today we're going to look at cognition, consciousness, and language. Um, I realize that I don't really have an introduction, so I'll work on it. But here we go. So the study of cognition looks at how our brains process and react to the incredible information overload presented to us by the world. Cognition is not really unique, but we're the most advanced, I guess. Um, the frontal lobe is disproportionately large in our subspecies, um, so our school is shaped to accommodate this kind of enlarged lobe. Um, so if we're going to think about the information processing model, there's four key components or pillars. So thinking requires sensation, encoding, and or storage of stimuli. Stimuli must be analyzed by the brain rather than responded to automatically to be useful in decision making. Decisions made in one situation can be extrapolated and adjusted to help solve new problems, also called situational modification. And problem solving is dependent not only on the person's cognitive level, but also on the context and complexity of the problem. So this is like a comparison, I guess, to computer modeling. So in computers, for them to store and process information, the information must be included in the language that the computer understands, and then it must be stored in a way that it can be found later, and then it must be able to retrieve that information when required. Um, so there's Paimio's dual coding theory, which states that both verbal association and visual images are used to process and store information. Um, and the fact that we can code this information in two different ways builds redundancy and increases the chance that the information can be retrieved and used effectively when queued, such like compared to like a search engine optimization within a computer program. So that's why we had to switch up this kind of computer analogy into the information processing model. So cognitive development is the development of one's ability to think and solve problems across the lifespan. So in childhood, it's limited by the pace of the brain maturation. Um, so early cognitive development includes learning control of one's own body and learning how to interact with and manipulate the environment, and it's characterized by mastering the physical environment. And then social skills also develop. Um, and abstract thinking is a big challenge. Um, and it depends on increases in working memory and mental capacities. So there's that. Um, the abstract thought is also defined as the ability to think about things that are not physically present and can be lost in some mental disorders. So like schizophrenic patients um, have concrete thinking and will give an answer focus on chickens, but not the underlying concept of like when you ask them to interpret the cliche, like don't count your chickens before they hatch. So the next big Part of this is the Piaget's, Piaget, Piaget, don't know how to pronounce that properly, I don't think, but I'll go with Piaget. So Piaget's stages of cognitive development. So Jean Piaget was one of the most influential figures in developmental psychology and the model of cognitive development proposes that there are different differences in qual, or there are qualitative differences between the way that children and adults thinks and they can be explained through the division of life into four stages which are the sensory motor, pre-operational, concrete operational, and formal operational. Um, passage through each of these stages was continuous and sequential in which completion of each stage prepares the individual for the stage that follows. So according to Piaget, infants learn through instinctual interaction with the environment, so they have the grasping reflex, um, and these organized patterns of behavior and thought are schemata. A schema can include a concept, a behavior, or a sequence of events. So like, what is a dog? What do you do when someone asks you your name? Or what do you do normally in a sit-down restaurant? 
Then as the child proceeds through these stages, the new information has to be placed into the different schemata. So new information is processed via adaptation, and adaptation to information comes about via two complementary processes, assimilation and accommodation. Assimilation is the process of classifying new information into existing schemata, and if it doesn't neatly fit into existing schemata, then accommodation occurs, which is um, where existing schemata are modified to encompass this new information. So let's go through the four stages. So the first stage in Piaget's model is the sensory motor stage starting at birth and lasting until about two years of age. In this stage, a child learns to manipulate his or her environment in order to meet physical needs and learns to coordinate sensory input with motor actions. So that's why it's called sensory motor. So infants begin to exhibit two types of behavior patterns called circular reactions because they're repetitive. So primary circular reactions are repetitions of body movements that originally occurred by chance, like sucking the thumb, and they're repeated because they find them soothing. So secondary circular reactions are also one that happen when manipulation is filled with stimuli outside the body, such as repeatedly throwing toys from a high chair, and they're repeated because the child gets a response from the environment, so when the parent picks up the dropped toy. Um, the key milestone that ends the sensory motor stage is the development of object permanence, which is the understanding that objects continue to exist even when out of view. So object permanence is the idea behind peekaboo, so the game is entertaining because they don't have object permanence. Every time the adult reveals him or herself, the child interpret it, interprets it as though he or she has just come into existence. And object permanence marks the beginning of representational thought in which the child has begun to create mental representations of external objects and events. So the next stage is the pre-operational stage. Um, it lasts from about two to seven years, and it's characterized by symbolic thinking and egocentrism. So symbolic thinking refers to the ability to pretend they make believe and have an imagination. Egocentrism refers to the inability to imagine what another person may think or feel. The pre-operational stage includes the inability to grasp the concept of conservation, which is the understanding that a physical amount remains the same, even if there's a change in shape or appearance. So the child in a pre-operational stage would not be able to tell the difference between um, a large, a single large slice of pizza versus two slices that are still the same quantity and they'll just focus on the number of slices on the plate rather than the actual quantity. And this flaw in cognition is due to centration, which is the tendency to focus on only one aspect of a phenomenon. The concrete operational stage lasts from about 7 to 11 years, and children can understand conservation and consider the perspectives of others, and this consideration results in the loss of egocentrism, and they're able to engage in logical thought as long as they're working with concrete objects or information that is directly available. Still can't think abstractly, though. The formal operational stage starts around 11 years and is marked by the ability to think logically about abstract ideas. And this coincides with adolescence um, and you can reason about abstract concepts and problem solve. Um, so we can see the difference between this and concrete operations um, through the pendulum experiment. So kids can be given a pendulum and they can vary the length of the string, the weight and the force of a push and the initial angle. And they wanted to ask them how to find out what determined the frequency of the swing. So in concrete operational, they manipulated the variables at random and disordered the data to fit preconceived hypotheses. Adolescents were able to hold all variables but one constant at a given time, proceeding methodically to discover that only one length of the string would affect the frequency. And so this ability to mentally manipulate variables in a number of ways is an important component of the formal operational stage and is termed hypothetical reasoning. So Cognitive development is also really related to culture, and one's culture can determine what one ex is expected to learn, so some will place higher value on social learning, like cultural traditions and roles, while others will value knowledge. 
and one's culture can also influence the rate of cognitive development as children are treated very differently in each culture. So Lev Vygotsky, which is a prominent educational psychologist, proposed that the engine driving cognitive development is a child's internalization of his or her culture, including interpersonal and social rules, symbols, and language, or societal rules, symbols, and language. And as a child develops, his or her skills and abilities are still in formative stages, and with the help of adults and other children, they can develop these skills further. And this can come in the form of instruction or watching another child perform the skill, etc. Aging also brings about changes in cognition, so reaction time can increase steadily in early adulthood, while time-based perspective memory, the ability to remember to perform a task at a specific time in the future, declines with age, and intellectual changes can occur, but IQ changes have really been misleading. Um, early research into the field of intelligent and aging indicates that a substantial decline in IQ occurs between 30 and 40, and Intelligent had to be separated into two subtypes, which is fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. Fluid consists of solving new or novel problems, possibly using creative methods, figuring out how to navigate through a video game um, is an example of one. And then crystallized intelligence is more related to solving problems using acquired knowledge and often can be procedural, so like going through a stoichiometry problem. Um, and then fluid intelligence peaked in early adulthood but declined with age, and crystallized intelligence peaked in middle adulthood and remained stable with age. Um, decline in intellectual abilities in adulthood has been linked with how long an older adult retains the ability to function in what are known as activities of daily living, like eating, bathing, toileting, dressing, and ambulation. This decline is not really uniform, so it depends on like certain characteristics. So higher level of education, more frequent performance of intellectual activities, socializing, and a stimulating environment. Those can all protect you against intellectual decline. Um, and it's also not always benign, so sometimes it's very common and it indicates a progressive loss of function beyond that of just old age. So there's um, something known as dementia, which is disorders and conditions characterized by general loss of cognitive function. It starts with impaired memory, but progresses to impaired judgment, confusion, personality changes. Uh, one of the most common causes is Alzheimer's. Then there's also vascular or multi-infarct dementia, which is caused by high blood pressure and repeated microscopic clots in the brain. There's um, also important to note that they require these people require full-time supportive care in order to carry out activities of daily living, and this causes tremendous stress on the families, including children and spouses. Um, but yeah, so. Cognition can also be affected by a lot of conditions. This can be like actual problems with the brain itself, genetic and chromosomal conditions, metabolic derangements, and long-term drug use, and as well as the environment. Parenting styles can influence cognitive development by reward, punishment, or indifference for an emerging skill. Genetics can predispose you to a state that may make cognitive development different, difficult, so like Down syndrome, fragile X syndrome, antisocial personality disorder, um, there's, there can also be intellectual disabilities in children, which is caused by chemical exposures, illness, injury, or trauma during birth, alcohol use, um, such as causing something called fetal alcohol syndrome, which results in slowed cognitive development and distinct craniofacial features. Um, you can have infections in the brain that result in electrical abnormalities and slow development, and then um, complications during birth with like reduced oxygen delivery to the brain can also affect cognition, and it can also occur following trauma to the brain, like with shaken baby syndrome. Um, and then all, not all cognitive decline in adulthood is slow. They can be something known as delirium, which is indicated if there's been a rapid decline in cognition. So delirium is rapid fluctuation in cognitive function that is reversible and caused by medical or non-psychological causes and can be caused by electrolyte and pH disturbances, malnutrition, low blood sugar, infection, a drug reaction, alcohol withdrawal, and pain.
Um, yeah, and then I guess there's this image of fetal alcohol syndrome and its craniofacial features, which are skin folds at the corners of the eyes, low nasal bridge, short nose, indistinct philtrum, which is a groove between the nose and upper lip, small head circumference, small eye opening, small mid-face, thin upper lip. Next, um, we're going to move on to problem solving and decision making, I think. I think this is an important one. I think that will be the, and we'll stop there and we'll pick up at consciousness in the next episode, probably. But, so, let's think about how we think about problems. So first you have to frame a problem, and we, so you create a mental image or a schematic of the issue, then you generate potential solutions and you test them, and these potential solutions may be derived from a mental set, which is a tendency to approach similar problems in the same way. And once you test those solutions, you evaluate the results, and you consider other potential solutions that might have been easier or more effective in some way. Um, it can be impeded by an inappropriate mental set, um, as well as by functional fixedness, which is demonstrated by Dunker's candle problem. So you walk into a room, you see a box of matches, some tacks, and a candle. You have to mount the candle on the wall. And most people find this challenging because if you tack the candle into the wall, that solution doesn't work because the wax was still dropped on the floor. The matchbox can serve, the point here is that the matchbox should serve not just as a container for the matches, but as a holder for the candle. Oh, I should have let y'all try that before I went through it. Oh well. Um, so yeah, the solution is to tack the box to the wall and put the candle in the box. And functional fixedness would be defined as the inability to consider how to use an object in a non-traditional matter or manner. So there's different kinds of approaches to problem solving. So there's trial and error, which is a less sophisticated type, where various solutions are tried until one is found that seems to work. And this type of problem solving is usually only effective when there are relatively few possible solutions. There's algorithms, which is a formula or procedure for solving a certain type of problem. Algorithms can be mathematical or a set of instructions designed to automatically produce the desired solution. Then there's deductive top-down reasoning, which starts from a set of general rules and draws conclusions from the information given. Um, so there's like a logic puzzle. That's an example of one where there's only one possible solution that can be deduced based on the information given. Then there's inductive or bottom-up reasoning, which seeks to create a theory via generalizations. This starts with like a specific instance, and then you draw a conclusion on them, and you go yada yada. Um, Decision-making is a pretty complicated process, so we use different tools to speed up or simplify the process. Um, so one of them is heuristics, which are simplified principles used to make decisions. They're colloquially called rules of thumb. The availability heuristic is a heuristic used when we base the likelihood of an event on how easily examples of that event come to mind. So sometimes this will lead us to a correct decision, but not always. So um, Let's see, as an example, we can use this question, are there more words in the English language that start with the letter K or that have K as their third letter? Most people respond that there are more words that begin with the letter K than have K as their third letter. And that, in fact, there are twice as many words in the English that have K as the third letter that begin with K. Um, so the availability heuristic tends to lead to an incorrect answer as exemplified by this. There's also the representativeness heuristic, which involves categorizing items on the basis of whether they fit the prototypical, stereotypical, or representative image of the category. So, flipping a coin ten times in a row and it lands on heads every time, what's the probability of it landing on heads the next time? 
Mathematically, the probability should still be 50%, but most people will overestimate based on the pattern that has already been established. So the availability heuristic, the use of the representative heuristic, can also lead us astray. Like the availability heuristic, sorry. And then using prototypical or stereotypical factors while ignoring actual numerical information is called the base rate fallacy. Um, heuristics are still essential to speedy and effective decision making, though, and they can be used by experts. And there are heuristics that can quickly roll out some of the possible moves in, like, chess, and they can be more efficient for problem solving. Um, the next thing that we'll go through is bias and overconfidence. So when a potential solution to a problem fails, the solution should be discarded, and this is known as the disconfirmation principle. The evidence obtained from testing that demonstrated that the solution doesn't work. But there could be a confirmation bias that prevents the individual from eliminating the solution, which is known as the tendency to focus on information that fits an individual's beliefs while rejecting information that goes against them. This can also contribute to overconfidence, which is a tendency to erroneously interpret one's decisions, um, knowledge, and beliefs as infallible. An additional type of bias is a hindsight bias, which is a tendency for people to overestimate their ability to predict the outcome events that have already happened. And the similar phenomenon of belief perseverance refers to the inability to reject a particular belief despite clear evidence to the contrary. So together, all these things can impede someone's analysis of evidence. Um, then there's intuition, which is the ability to act on perceptions that may not be supported by available evidence. So people might have beliefs that are not necessarily supported by evidence, but they have like a gut feeling that that's right. Um, intuition is often developed by experience. And um, there can be a recognition prime decision model where the doctor's brain, in an example of someone who can develop a sense of who's going to actually have a heart attack without looking at an EKG or their vitals. The doctor's brain is actually sorting through a wide variety of information to match a pattern. And there is an extensive level of experience that is able to help them do this. There's also emotion, which is a subjective experience of a person in a certain situation. How a person feels often influences how they think and make decisions, so they are not limited to the ex emotion experience. While the decision is being made, they can have an there can be emotions that a person expects to feel from a particular decision, which involve, which is an effect on the decision that is made. Um, so, let's think about some models for aspects of intelligence. So, there is Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, which is one of the most all-encompassing definitions with eight defined types of intelligence. Linguistic, logical, mathematical. Oops. Okay, let me read. Right, let me reread this. So there's linguistic, logical, mathematical, musical, visual, spatial, bodily, kinesthetic, interpersonal, intrapersonal, and naturalist. So Western culture values the first two abilities over the others. After all, linguistic ability and logical mathematical ability are the two abilities tested on traditional IQ tests. IQ stands for intelligent quotient. Um, and a person's interpersonal and intrapersonal intelligence can actually heavily impact their quality of life. Um, interpersonal is the ability to detect and navigate the moods and motivations of others. Um, so people with high interpersonal intelligence can make like great sales reps, therapists, and then intrapersonal intelligence centers around being mindful of one's own emotions, strengths, and weaknesses, and can provide clear guidance on what role one should take in a group or society. Then there's Robert Sternberg, who pioneered a cognitive perspective that focused on how people use their intelligence rather than taking the traditional approach of trying to measure an individual's level of intelligence. So Sternberg's triarchy theory of human intelligence 
defines three subtypes. So there's analytical intelligence, which involves the ability to evaluate and reason, creative intelligence, which is the ability to solve problems using novel methods, and practical intelligence, which involves dealing with everyday problems at home or at work. And then we also need to have a successful navigation of our social world. Um, so understanding our emotions and the emotions of those around us, which is the theory of emotional intelligence, which is addressing our emotional awareness in four components, the ability to express and perceive emotions in ourselves and others, the ability to comprehend and analyze our emotions, the ability to regulate our emotions, and the awareness of how emotions shape our thoughts and decisions. So empathy is like an example of emotional intelligence because empathy requires someone to understand your emotions well enough to recognize those emotions in other people. So there's a lot of tests that can quantify intelligence. Um, the founding concept behind these is Spearman's D-factor, or general intelligence factors, and the theory behind it is based on the observation that performance on different cognitive tasks is, in many cases, positively correlated. Um, so it could be an underlying factor or variable. Um, this is measured with standardized tests that generate an intelligence quotient for the test taker, aka the IQ test. And the IQ tests were largely pioneered by Alfred Binet, Binet in the early 20th century and a professor at Stanford took it and created what is known as the Stanford Binet IQ test. So yeah, I will, oh no, I've got a little bit more, sorry. <laughs> um, so later iterations of the test use different methodologies to arrive at a score, but it's useful to know the original formula. So it's mental age over chronological age times 100. So a four-year-old with intelligence abilities at the level of an average six-year-old would have an IQ of 150. Um, and, yeah. So, intelligence can be argued for as a hereditary trait, so like in Galton and the novel Hereditary Genius. In reality, variations in intellectual ability can be attributed to a lot of determinants, including genes, environment, and educational experiences, and it does appear to run in families, which may be due to both genetics and the environment. Some environments could be more enriching than others. Parental expectations, socioeconomic status, and nutrition have all been shown to correlate with intelligence. Um, and then, of course, the lovely educational system plays a significant role in the development of intelligence. People who have gone to school have greater increases in IQ, and it decreases during summer vacations. Um, early intervention in childhood improves IQ, especially for kids who have low enrichment environments. And then both intellectually gifted and cognitively disabled children benefit from specialized educational environments. Um, so this is for cognitively disabled students, this is often described as the least restrictive environment where they are encouraged to participate as much as possible in the regular mainstream classroom with individualized help as much as possible or as needed. But okay, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We're going to pick up next time um, looking at consciousness, uh, sleep, cycles, and hopefully some consciousness altering drugs and maybe the concept summary if we can finish from there um oof, maybe not okay i won't drag on much longer i'll stop it here